0: Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message.
1: Hello. We're on. Excellent. Welcome tonight. Welcome to everyone who's here in person. Welcome to those on the stream. We haven't forgotten about you. We still like you, even though you didn't make it here. Um, I am Chip, you've probably heard that 15 times by this point. My actual name is Ben, for those of you who don't know me, don't fear, I haven't got that weird of a name. Uh, I'm here tonight, uh, for the second time, just to clear that up, there's my second sermon here, but not my second sermon ever, so we'll hopefully go okay, but please have grace as if it was my first one, that would be nice. Um, in carrying on with my tradition of setting myself vastly two larger goals to try and achieve in one sermon... Last time I did all of, uh, what were we, John 11 or something? Yeah, I tried doing all of that whilst on a baptism night, so in limited time. Tonight I thought I'd do the entire story of one man in Old Testament times, his life, his journey, his death, uh, all the cultural things you need to know to understand that, whilst also introducing the book of Philippians. So we've got plenty of time to play with. We're about to kick off a four, well, we are kicking off a four-week series on the book of Philippians. I'm week one. We've got three other people who aren't Nick or our regular preachers, so if you're sick of them, the next three weeks are for you. Um, sadly, though, we won't have the famous names that are Nick Van Ruth and Dave Shepherd, who made it into the advertiser this week. If you haven't seen that, look it up. <laughs> really? Yeah, and their photos are great in there. Um, <laughs> I promise I'm about to start the sermon. Just got to bully Nick to start with. Okay. So, as I said, we're kicking off the book of Philippians. And as you would obviously begin when talking about Philippians, you'd start in the book of Acts. So if everyone would like to open to that, if you've got a Bible or whatnot, we're going to be talking from the book of Acts about a bloke named Saul who lived in the town, well, the city of Tarsus. So obviously very related to the book of Philippians. At this time, we are... A couple of years after the birth of Jesus, about six, we're going to be doing a few historical things here and I'm going to make some assumptions and pick some school of thoughts and if you're a biblical historian in the room or watching later on, you're welcome to come fight me on whether or not I'm right. I'm not particularly attached to my dates but we're just going to work with them because they're the ones I've got. So we're about six years after the birth of Christ. If I could have a PowerPoint slide, that would be wonderful. Ah, Brilliant IT people don't worry about it, don't stress, we're all good. I'm going to try and show you some maps and some pictures because I'm a very visual person and I believe the Bible should have come with more pictures. I don't know if any of you can read that, but that's a map, very good, with Bethlehem down the bottom and Tarsus up the top. Next to Bethlehem is Jerusalem. Don't ask me why Jerusalem is so much smaller than Bethlehem. Not geologically correct, but we're in the right spot. Basically, all of the New Testament up until this point has happened... Around that Jerusalem area. The whole left side of the map, basically irrelevant so far. But we're gonna get there. We're gonna get there. So we kick off. We're about 6 AD, we're up in Tarsus, a baby is born. Now, this baby would grow up to be a person who is credited as being in the top three most influential people of his time. He's beaten out, wholly and solely, by Jesus. Fair enough, hard one to fight. And then he's tied for second, really, with Emperor Nero, big man, run the Roman Empire. Crazy, correct, yeah. Like to light Christians on fire at birthday parties, that sort of fella. He was pretty wild. Read about him if you haven't. So, you know, he's up there with some big people, right? There's some big shoes to fill, and he's grown up in a town of Tarsus, which is a pretty impressive city. It's got a cool university, but it's no Jerusalem. It's no Rome. It's just a a regional city, if you will. It's a bit of a Mount Barker. (laughs) That was rough, I (laughs) apologise. So he's grown up in a regional town, and you've got plenty of opportunities. He's been born into, he's a Jewish person, so he's born Jewish, he's been born into an Israelite family, but his family were landowners when Rome took over, and part of that gave you some privileges. So if you owned, Rome, if you owned land when the Roman Empire took you over, you were automatically given Roman citizenship, and so were all of your kids, which is a big win. It means that you're exempt from some persecution, you've got some lighter taxes, you don't have to worry about being persecuted for your religious beliefs. That's a win. So Paul's born into this family, relatively wealthy, living in Mount Barker. It's a nice time for them. His dad's a tent maker, a handy trade at the time, less so nowadays, I'll admit. So he's doing all right for himself. And as he starts to grow up, his family encourage him... If you want to go to the next slide... This is uh, an accurate photo of Tarsus. It's not, but it's close. <laughs> Picture it. Look, goats, people, buildings, lovely. Anyway, he grows up in Tarsus and he studies there and he learns and as, good, as a good Jewish young man, he learns the Old Testament, the Torah. He learns all the things that a Jewish person should at the time. He listens to the law and at one point in his life, his family encouraged him to go and study under a Pharisee, a teacher of the law. And not just any old teacher of the Lord, he goes and the law. He goes and studies under a man named Gamaliel. I may have pronounced that wrong, it's a cool name. Anyway, he is a teacher. Like there are teachers and then there are teachers. So he is so powerful and so influential, he sits on a council called the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin is just a council of really impressive teachers who have all the political power for the Jewish people in the time. They make all the decisions. So if they decide something, and they're based in Jerusalem, if they decide something, it is that for all Jewish people wherever they are. So these are powerful, powerful men. And this man named Saul, off he goes to study under Gamaliel. Now, does he do his bachelor's or his master's or his PhD? You know, is he there for three or four or five or six years? He studies under him intensively for eight years eight years studying under one of the most knowledgeable and most influential teachers of the time. So Saul knew his stuff. And he wasn't just an okay student. He didn't pass through. He didn't get those Ps, get degrees attitude. No, he excelled. He knew what he was on about. And after eight years of studying with him, we start to get to an interesting time where historians aren't quite certain which way this is. But it's some people believe that he was offered a seat on the Sanhedrin so he was offered this position of absolute power. There was only realistically one person, the high priest and God, if you're counting him, that sat above the Sanhedrin. So this was it. He's a, he's a young man. He studied all his life. He's got this absolute sense of power and he knows what he's talking about. He's good at his job. He's got his life figured out. He knows where he's going. And the, the Sanhedrin knows that. They love that. He's, he's young, he's enthusiastic, he knows what he's on about. He's a great asset. Next slide. This is the photo of Paul I'm going to use, or Saul. It's also not from the time, but I like it, and we're going to deal with that. So this is our man Saul here. He likes a sword and he likes his books. He knows what he's on about. A bit of authority, a lot of knowledge. That's what we're going for here. There you go, for the visual learners, that's Saul. So Saul is there, he's in Jerusalem, he's with the Sanhedrin, he's studying, he's making rulings, he has so much authority that after he comes back, he goes for a little trip, he comes back to Jerusalem and something's changed. There's a new movement, it's called The Way. It seems very new agey to Saul, he doesn't like it. Neither do most of the people in the Sanhedrin, neither do most of the people in Jerusalem. Now Saul refuses to call them by their appropriate name, the way, he refers to them in a more derogatory sense. The Nazareans, yuck. These were a group of Christ, uh, group of Jewish people who followed the man called Jesus of Nazareth. Hence, the main nickname, the Nazareans. They were going around as the way. Now, if you haven't listened to our John series on the I am statements, I am the truth, I am the I am the way, I am the way. Hence, naming group. There you go. You're all on the same page now. It's very clever. Um, So these people called I Am The Way are in Jerusalem and they're preaching this new movement, this new idea that there was other ways to get into heaven. You didn't just have to listen to the law all of the time and live a perfect life and then you'd get there. No, they were talking about this man who came and who had died and was resurrected and had covered everybody's sins. An outlandish idea to somebody who was so down-the-line Jewish that he was on the Sanhedrin, or at least nearby. Now, this infuriated Paul and a few of the other people to one point where the leaders of this movement, the Way, in Jerusalem, were brought before the Sanhedrin. They were brought before the council. They were sent to the principal's office. And the principal sat them down and said, ''Cut it out or we'll take all your stuff.'' And they said, ''We don't care. Our stuff is worthless.'' And so they kept on preaching it. And then they were brought into the principal again. And he said, cut it out or we'll have to kill you. And they said, oh, well, then we'll be with Jesus. And this was very, very infuriating for the Sanhedrin. I imagine if you had a student who came in and acted like that, you'd get annoyed too. Perhaps not as annoyed as Saul because Saul picked up a rock and threw it at their heads. So Stephen, Stephen, Stephen. Stephen, thank you, don't mind me fact-checking whilst I preach. So Stephen was there and he said, I don't mind if you kill me, I'm going to keep preaching this. And Saul goes, I'll test it. So he picks up a rock and throws at him and all the other men of the Sanhedrin pick up rocks and stone him to death. So Saul's got some power if in front of all of these powerful men he was able to pick up a rock, throw it at him and everyone followed suit. A terrifying amount of power. So Stephen is stoned to death. Not a great start for our hero that's meant to change the world, but we'll see how he carries on. At this point, the leaders of the way, they run away. They all get out of Jerusalem, pretty much. It's a bit scary there. There are rocks flying. You don't want to stick around. So they all leave. But the movement isn't finished, and the Pharisees know this. The Sanhedrin are mad. They're like, we've got to get rid of this. I don't like deceit. I don't want people thinking different things. We've got to stamp out this teaching. And they know that a lot of the the people who fled from Jerusalem fled north. Perfect. We've got a young, enthusiastic, well-informed man from the north. We'll send him to sort them out. So Saul, Saul is tasked with this mission of finding the members of the way and arresting them or killing them and bringing them to justice. Now he's got the full backing of the Sanhedrin here. Everyone's on board. They're like, we've got to stop this. It's not good for us. And so off he goes. He's got his orders. He's sent off to the town of Damascus. He's headed up north back to Tarsus. I think we have a next slide. Yeah. For those of you who can't read it because it's impossibly small, you've got Jerusalem at the bottom, Damascus in the middle, Antioch, Tarsus. Right? Everyone knows where we are. The little circle there has another picture that isn't Saul but is and he's on his way to Damascus as you can tell by reading the map. So on his way to Damascus, he's off there, he's got his mission, he's really good at his job, he knows what he has to do, he's been given his orders, I'm off to arrest these people. He's been doing it in Jerusalem and he's been doing it around by, he's gotten so good at it that he actually now arrests people, collects their documents and knows where they're headed. So he's like, right, I'm going after them. And off he heads to Damascus and he gets halfway there on this three-day hike and he's got his mates around and they're all chatting the Torah and what they're going to do when they get to Damascus, how nice the beer will be what they're going to do about arresting the Way or the Nazareans. And then all of a sudden, there's a blinding light and Saul falls to the ground. And all of the other people there are quite terrified because a blinding light has just appeared. Fair enough. And whilst this is happening, Saul hears a voice asking, why do you persecute me so? Why do you persecute my people? This is God. This is God stepping down and telling Paul off. He's been told off by the principal's principal. The bosses in town. So Paul's in trouble at this point. And it's at this point that I pick up the story and go, every now and again I'm sitting at home and I'm not sure about my job or what I'm doing in life and I just wish God would step down and tell me what to do. And then I read this and go, maybe I don't. Because not only was there a blinding light and a voice that only Saul heard and none of his friends heard, but he then ended up blind, not just momentarily blind, it wasn't a flash, he didn't look at the sun, no, he was blind for days. He had to be walked into town by his friends, he had to wait in the town of Damascus for his enemy, a member of the way, to come over to heal him and then to tell him he's been doing the wrong thing. So God didn't just step down and say, no, you're doing all right, Saul. Like, you know, we can work with this. Just edit your path a little bit. We can can straighten you out. No, he blinded him for days and then he forced his enemy to tell him he was doing the exact opposite thing to what he should be. I don't think I'd like to hear that from God. So I'd rather he didn't step down and tell me that. But he might. (laughs) Anyway, so Saul ends up in Damascus. He's healed. He learns about the way. And he's converted. So this champion, this powerful member of the Jewish culture who knows what he's on about, who's studied it for years, who has all of the power and all of the support from the other Jewish leaders, now goes, I think we're wrong. Oops. So instead of being sent to Damascus to arrest and to kill and to apprehend these people, he ends up going there, learning he was wrong, and then to add insult to injury begins preaching the message he's just been told. He takes a little bit of a break, which is probably fair. It's been a trying time, the whole being blind and then realising your entire value structure was out of order and having to completely flip over your life plan. I imagine that would stress most people out. So he takes a bit of time off. He does a bit of, of soul searching, does some learning and then he gets back to it. He only stays there a short time. Once he returns to Damascus though... He comes back, talking about the new way, about the things he's learnt, the things he's been shown, the things he's been taught. He's a completely changed man. He's not completely changed because he's still Saul. He still is the person who had come here with a sword in one hand and a book in the other hand. But he's different. He's talking about this. And the local Jewish population are not on board. They're not happy that there knows what he's on about, powerful member of the Sanhedrin who'd rock up, to clear out the way, is now preaching their message. So, as we've seen is the trend, they do it what any logical person at the time would do, they attempt to stone him. It's nearly successful too. But he ends up escaping through a hole in the wall and he runs away. Fair enough. It starts a very tumultuous journey for Saul. He does a lot of running away, he does a lot of nearly being stoned and he does a lot of nearly dying but the good thing you all know is he doesn't die, not for a while anyway. But he does nearly die, a lot. Anyway, after he's left Damascus, he heads down to Jerusalem, a brave move. He's just left there a few years before. He was meant to go up and clear out the way. He was meant to be the solution that the Sanhedrin sent north and instead he's come back south as the problem. So he rocks up back there and he comes back because he wants to meet with Peter and James who are two other members of the early church. These are big guns. These are people who know what they're talking about. This is the, the, the ways equivalent of the Sanhedrin. These people know what they're talking about. They get to make decisions. They're sorting out the early church. And Paul goes, uh, Saul goes, I need to go meet them. Absolutely. And they talk and they talk and they talk and they talk for days. Some accounts say that this went on for 14 days of consecutive conversation. Now, I love to chat, but I don't think I've got 14 days in me. Never know, this sermon hasn't finished yet, so we'll see how we go. And after he's met with these people, there's another plot to kill him. This will become a trend. People see that Saul's changed. He comes back preaching the other side and they try to kill him. It's not a great solution. It doesn't work. But they try to kill him. So he flees north, back to Tarsus. He's off home. He might as well go. You know, he knows some people. He can hide out there. It's pretty easy. He's got this new faith. He's got these new ideas. He's like, well, I'll take them home. I've got some people to share with, share them, share them with up there. So if he goes. He escapes, runs up north, goes home. Assumably stays with his parents, moves back in at about the age of, you know, 35. So don't feel bad. Even Saul did it. At this point, he meets up with a few other early church people. He meets up with these people named Barnabas, which is another cool name. Oh Gosh, we've really lost names in today's culture, haven't we? We should get better ones. He goes up there and he hangs out with Barnabas and then later on, they go back to Jerusalem. They keep trying this and it doesn't work great for them. They go back there and they try to spread the message again. And it's not really picking up in Jerusalem. It's not working great for them. They're getting picked on a fair bit. So they decide that maybe Jerusalem's not the place to do this. And Saul comes up with a brilliant idea. Why don't we go elsewhere? He's a thinker, this fellow. He didn't get on the Sanhedrin for nothing. So he decides to go out away from the places where everyone knows him and is trying to stone him and into places where people don't know him and they might not be trying to stone him. A revolutionary plan. If we have the next slide. Thank you. Here we get what is coined as the first missionary journey. Paul heads out. He takes Barnabas with with him. Go on. How am I pronouncing the name? (laughs) Barnabas? Barnabas? No, I like it with more syllables. (laughs) Barnabas has now been renamed by me to Barnabas. (laughs) Any problems? You're welcome to finish the sermon for me. Excellent. Now that we've sorted that out. (laughs) Oh dear, power's really gone to my head. He heads up north with a bloke named B for simplicity's sake. He and his mate B, they head off on a missionary journey. They hit a heap of towns, a heap of cities. These ones you can almost read, which is exciting. They head off to Antioch and they head off to a heap of other towns whose names you can't pronounce. And Antioch again, but in a different spot in case they got lost. I don't know which way they were going, but that's where they ended up. And they start preaching this new way to these people. Now, some of the towns take it great. Some of them start churches. Some of them start friendships with Saul. Some of them send him stuff. Some of them hang out together, compare notes, and kick off a great gospel community. Others not so well. Others go down the line of, "Let's try and kill him." And as you can tell by the fact that this isn't over, he keeps surviving. He's very slippery, this sore fellow. He gets places. And after this big journey, where he's gone to all of these churches and talked to all of these people, it's been years. So he goes, right. about a year and a half, maybe two years, better go back to Jerusalem, because for some reason, he's convinced that that's where he'll solve problems. So he heads back to Jerusalem. Heads back down south. He returns to Jerusalem for the apostolic council, which is a cool way of saying the early church leaders got together and chatted about stuff in case they were teaching the wrong things. So he comes back down for this meeting where they all get together and go, are you teaching this? I'm teaching that. Are you teaching this? Are we on the same page? Excellent. Which is pretty cool that they all checked that they were on the same page and that they did this every so often so that everyone was teaching the same thing everywhere they went and everyone was learning the same thing seems a bit like a clerical thing to me but you know whatever they've got to do it and after this you know they've chatted for a while and they've all figured out what they're teaching Saul gets an itch he wants to go again he had so much fun in his first missionary journey nearly dying that he thought why not give it a second crack I'll take a second group and me mate B will come with me again because he's a loyal follower but also a good teacher and they head off but then they have a fight he and his mate B They have a disagreement because on the first trip, they took a third person with him who chickened out and B was ready to forgive him and Saul was not. So they split up. By this point, I should have said Saul had changed his name to Paul. He decided that he was trying to talk to more Gentiles because the Jewish people kept trying to stone him. So he's trying to talk to other people outside of the Jewish faith and what might help, a more Gentile name. Everybody else was doing it. It was the trendy thing to do, was change your name. So he went, well, we'll drop one letter, chuck a P on there, job's right. Paul. So now Paul was travelling around. So he was the same man, just different values and a different name now. If he'd just changed that beard, then he probably would have been all right. No one would have known him. But he heads off. So he heads off and he picks up a couple of people along the way. But this second missionary journey took a while longer. Two and a half, three, maybe three and a half years. We're getting a bit foggy on dates. But he heads off. Next slide. Yeah, this is a missionary journey. Like, look at that. He's gone places at this point. So he heads up back north and he goes through Antioch again because why not? And then he goes through the second Antioch again because why not? And then he goes to uh, Ephesus, which is there sort of in the middle by itself, And he spends a long time at Ephesus. This is a big church plant for him. He spends years there across his life. Ephesus is one of the main places that Paul spends time when he's not trying to convert Jerusalem or hiding at home with his parents. So he heads off on this big missionary journey and he heads off further and further west trying to cover more and more areas and spread the word further and further. And this is the point where he goes through a town Called Philippi. Now, for those of you who are quick, that's where the letter from Philippians is sent. He hasn't written it yet, though, so you still get to listen to me for a while longer before we get to do the next cool thing. So he goes through this town called Philippi, and whilst he's there, he has a conversation. He talks to a a young woman who's a slave and tells her about Jesus, and she realizes that she's, well, she's set free from a demon. Pretty cool thing to do, fun thing to do whilst you're passing through a town. And Paul's reward for this, he's thrown in prison. Cool. So Paul's thrown in prison. And in these days, prisons were often just holes in the ground or a cave or an old well that they'd put a few bars over and a bloke stood out the front of with a sword. They were pretty makeshift. They are often in the middle of a town or at the entrance to a town so that passers through would see people in prison and go, I shouldn't mess around in this town. I'll be good. So most of the time you'd get a prison that is damp, and horrible, and the chains would be terrible, and you know you'd be mouldy and in pain because you've been flogged on your way in, and everybody would be crying out for help or miserable. But not Paul, because he's a darned optimist. This fellow, he sat in the pool, he sat in the prison all night and proclaimed the gospel. All night he sat there yelling the good news of Jesus. I'm sure his cellmates were sick of it by the morning, but all night as passers-by came through, he was saying the good news of Jesus. And in the morning, there was an earthquake and the cell doors rattled open. And at this point, Paul capitalised on the opportunity and even converted the guard who was sent to protect them. Can't, can't keep the man down, I tell you. But after this, he runs away because he thinks Philippi's a bit, you know, how you going? But he set up a church there, so off he goes, onto the next towns, and he heads back through some other towns that, if you're a Bible person, you'll notice... These are familiar, Corinth, all these things. Letters are written there, but they're not our focus today. So he carries on through all of this, and after a number of years, he goes, why not back to Jerusalem? Maybe this time's the go. It's about 51 AD now. Paul's well into his 40s. He's getting up there. This is where he starts to get grey hair, looks like an old wise man, long beard. So Paul goes, this time they'll listen. We'll go back to Jerusalem. And he heads back to Jerusalem. And after he gets there, he gets bored really quickly. And he turns to his mates and he goes, I reckon I could do that again. Why not a third trip? How exciting. And so he plans. And he sets off on a third trip. Next slide. Aha, the maps keep getting bigger because Paul keeps going further and further afield to find people who aren't going to stone him to death. It's tricky in these day and ages. Is that the same map? No. It's nearly the same map. I don't know that that's actually the map I meant to put in there. But you get the picture. He heads off west again and he visits a heap of cities and a heap of towns and he sets up a heap of churches. In his life, it's credited he started somewhere between 14 to 20 churches by himself. That's a lot of churches. That's a busy man. He got a lot of stuff done. He travelled... He spent some time in Antioch. He travels through uh, a heap of other places. He arrives in Ephesus again, and he ministers there for three consecutive years. That's a long time to be in one place when you're as busy as Paul. When you've got so many churches to set up, he spends three years there. He performs miracles. He delivers such incredible sermons that when he leaves, the town explodes. Not quite literally, but almost. Everybody writes. There's a mass problem. And Paul goes, oh, better not go near there again. So he runs away, as Paul does. He's very good at running away. He travels north. He goes to Titus. He goes to Corinth and he writes to the Romans. Um, He travels all through Jerusalem. He travels all the way back to Jerusalem. Sorry. Again, he's very persistent. But when he comes back to Jerusalem this time, he's arrested. They've had enough. They're fed up. He keeps preaching this the way message. They're now known as Christians by this point. This Christian message that the the leaders of Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, are not happy with. So they arrest him. And he's kept there. He's kept nearby for a number of years. And after some time, he petitions to Rome because Rome runs the whole land. So he sends them a petition. and He says, I'd like to get out of here. I'd like to be arrested somewhere else. Would be nice. So eventually they agree. They agree that he can go to Rome. He's wanted to go to Rome for ages. He loves trying to get to Rome because Rome is a cultural hub. He thinks if I can just get there, if I can just convince them, then it will spread much, much further. And after a long and complicated story that we won't go through with some storms and some shipwrecks and him getting bitten by a snake and then him getting nearly killed by locals and then another storm and then him nearly getting killed again. I think that's it. He ends up in Rome and there he's under house arrest. And this... This is where he writes the letter to the Philippians. At this point, <laughs> so he's done a lot of stuff. He writes the letter to the Philippians whilst under house arrest in Rome, we're pretty sure. So, with all of that context covered, <laughs> we're now going to do a cool thing where we read through the entirety of the letter of Philippians. So the letter of Philippians was written as a letter to the church in Philippi or to the people or to the Philippian people. So it was written in one document so we're going to read it as if it was one document not you know little chapters and verses and sections we're not reading little bits the whole thing through so abby's organized some number of readers who might want to jump up now you wonderful people so you don't have to keep listening to my voice and they're going to read the whole way through i'll get up and say a little bit to finish and then you're safe
2: thanks chip All right, everybody's here. So this is the whole book of Philippians, starting from chapter 1 all the way through to chapter 4. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of my brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or from true, that Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance.
0: I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in a way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. And that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have.
3: that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good purpose."
4: I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for you, sorry, he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honour people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me.
5: ...have reason for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ." What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus.
6: All of us then, who are mature, should take such a view on things, and if some sorry, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live sorry, live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the way, sorry, in the Lord in his way. Dear friends, I plead with you, to, <laughs> yo dear, and I plead with Sinkt, sink <laughs> to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus.
7: Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord, and that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learnt the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, either living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I sent out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the manner of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desired your gifts, what I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied, now that I have received from Ephroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen.
1: Thank you very much to our wonderful readers. It was nice to get a break from my voice. And nice to hear the book as it was written. In completion read out aloud to a crowd. I suppose I hope you got to the end of that reading and had some questions left. Ask questions about context, hopefully not so much after tonight. But ask questions about topics or things you wanted to hear more of because we've got three weeks on it. So if you read all, if you listened to all of that and you were on all of it then it's going to be dry three weeks but hopefully there is more for you to learn. I just want to close with why (laughs) I told you a rambling story of a man named Saul slash Paul that was slightly chaotic and some historians would slightly disagree with me at some points and maybe some names were said wrong and things like that. I told this story in this way because for me one of the major things I forget when reading the Bible is that the Bible is almost entirely about people. There are real people in it. These were real people that travelled to real places in real times, did real things, met with real groups, had real thrown stones thrown at them, if I could really speak. These were real people. And I often need to sit myself down and remind myself that Paul was a man who travelled around this area for some 40 years trying to set up churches, having his life in danger, having thrown away all of the power and the privilege and the position and the direction he had as a member of the Sanhedrin or at least near the Sanhedrin. He was a man who had all of the things together. He had all of his ducks lined up. He was a Roman citizen in Rome. He was a teacher of the law in the Jewish culture. He could have had such an easy life. Instead, he spent years and years and years travelling around, not wealthily. He wasn't travelling in luxury. He was under threat of death almost always. And in the end, he was put to death. So after the book of Philippians was written, or the letter to the Philippians was written, Paul ends up being arrested for the final time. What happens is that a new Caesar, a new leader of Rome comes in, Nero... This is the man we talk about who burns Christians as candles. He was not a friend of the faith. He comes in and at some point Rome burns. There's a massive fire, Rome burns down and Nero goes, I need someone to blame this on. So he blamed it on the Christians. And in particular, he blames it on Paul. He goes, bring me the leader of this faith that has set us on fire. So Paul is arrested. He's brought before Nero. And in a commentary I read about this, ...there's just this wonderful passage I'll read you... ...referring to the trial of Nero and Paul. On the judgment seat, clad in the imperial purple... sat a man who in a bad world had attained the eminence... ...of being the very worst and meanest being in it. A man stained with every crime... ...a man whose whose whole being was so steeped... ...in every nameable and unnameable vice... That body and soul of him were, as someone said at the time, nothing but a compound of mud and blood. And in the prisoner's dock stood the very best man the world possessed, his hair whitened with the labours for the good of men and the glory of God. This is how Paul's story ends. He's put to death for burning Rome, something he did not do, by a man who judged him who had no right to judge him. But as we read in Philippians then, Paul knew this was coming. Paul understood what this meant. He knew that to die was Christ. He gained. He won. He got to live with Christ. It doesn't make it any better. But yeah, his ministry journey finished. He did not, for the best of our knowledge, get to return to the people in in Philippi to thank them in person for their gift, He was put to death before he had the chance. But I will comment on the book, considering I barely talked about Philippians at all in our beginning series of Philippians. At the beginning of Philippians is this wonderful passage, this this joyful introduction that Paul does in the book of Philippians where he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy. He is so happy to write to the Philippians. It's one of the few churches who sent him aid when he was in need, one of the few churches that, as far as he can see, have really captured the point, the idea of the gospel, this idea of living in Christian community and looking out for each other. many letters he says thank you to a community or he gives thanks for God who he prays for them because they're in disarray or they're doing something wrong or they're in need of correction. But to the Philippians, Paul writes a letter In the positive, he writes a thank you and a well done and I pray more for you. This is very rare. Now Paul, again, he's not just a random person we picked out of the book. He wrote 13 of the New Testament books that we use today. That's a lot. He pretty much carried the team on writing there. Or maybe his scribes did. It's up for debate. But he's a very important man. I hope that some of the ramblings I had tonight... Have made him slightly more approachable. Although the picture of him as a beard with a sword and a book, not, not particularly correct. It's fun anyway. I will now pray for us if the band wants to come up. Cool. Dear God, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to gather, this opportunity to learn from your word and to encounter your people. I thank you for Paul and Saul. I thank you for the trials and the tribulations and the turns and the traps and the times you saved him and the times that he was put at risk. I thank you for all of these things, although at the time they would have seemed very confusing and terrifying. They were for your glory and, in total, the benefit of us. We thank you for those in the early church who suffered and fought so that the church might continue, so that your word be spread so that it could stand for thousands of years and reach us now. I pray, in addition for the persecuted church of today, that we all might remember that this idea of the church being persecuted did not die with Paul some 2,000 years ago, but is still very real in regions of our world today. I pray for the blessing that is your word, that the book of Philippians be encouraging and uplifting and testing and wonderful over the next few weeks as we go through it. I thank you for all those who helped put tonight together, the IT team who never get enough credit, the band who always do a wonderful job, and all of the others behind the scene, including those making supper. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast.